Hello and welcome to the Medjilis Podcast, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Medjilis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. We come to our gold mine in Kyrgyzstan was supposed to be an economic savior for the country. The people in Kyrgyzstan increasingly objected to the Canadian company's ownership of the mining project and the environmental damage at and near the mining site high in the Tian Shan Mountains on the southern shore of its pool. A constant source of controversy and a temptation, even an obsession for someone such as the current president, Sabdiri Japarov, who wanted Kyrgyzstan to seize his ownership of the mine. Japarov succeeded in taking Kumtar from the Canadian company, but that has not ended the controversy. If anything, there seems to be even more problems and criticism over the administration of the gold mine and where the gold is going. How has the situation with the Kumtor gold mine changed since the Kyrgyz government took control? And what role does it play in Kyrgyzstan's politics? To talk about this and other matters concerning Kyrgyzstan's prize economic project, I am joined by Dr. Boril Ojakli, a development practitioner turned academic, currently principal investigator at the Center for East European and International Studies in Berlin, Germany, Uh, She's a critical geographer and institutional economist and studies extractive infrastructures and authoritarian governance in Central Asia and the South Caucasus, including the role that China plays in the region. Uh, In her PhD, Burrill investigated the making and unmaking of Kyrgyzstan's gold rush. Uh, Dr. Asel Doalat Keldieva, she is an independent scholar and she has great background knowledge in resource extraction and nationalism in Kyrgyzstan. And Dr. Amanda Wooden, an associate professor of environmental studies and sciences at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. Her research explores environmental and water politics, extractive industries, hydroenergy, climate change, glaciers, and nationalism in Central Asia and the United States. Her work has been published in journals including Post-Soviet Affairs, Political Geography, and Central Asian Survey in various edited volumes. She is currently working on a book about the Kumtor Mine. Thank you all for joining me. And Amanda, since you're about to have a book published about the Kumtor gold mine, I was wondering if I could start with you. Could you give our audience an idea of the significance of the Kumtor gold mine project over the years? Sure. Um, let me just minimize expectations a bit. I'm not about to publish it, but it's a work in progress. Let's call it that. So, yes. Yeah, so the importance of the Kumtor gold mine, it is the largest open pit gold mine in the world actively operating through the removal of glaciers. So that is one of its most unique characteristics. It is one of the highest elevation mines in the world, sitting at 4,000 meters, 14,000 feet for the Americans listening. It produces on average between 10 and 12 percent of uh, GDP uh, for Kyrgyzstan, uh, about 20 or so percent of industrial output and thousands of jobs. Uh, It has been in operation since 1997 in a contract. It began production in 1997 in a contract signed uh, between uh, the Kyrgyz government and the Kyrgyz Republic government and uh, what was then Cameco, a Canadian, formerly uranium mine operator. Cameco later was sold to Sentara. Sorry, Sentara purchased the the license for mining. And so it has been in operation under the Sentara Gold Mining Company for for quite a long time. And they've been working through this operation at this facility uh, through the use of technology that's, you know, in development at this mine that isn't used elsewhere. So it's also a test site for mining in glaciated regions as glaciers decline in the climate era. 
Okay, thank you very much. I uh, appreciate that. Um, Baril, how did Kumtor go, the Kumtor Goldmine go from being a savior project, as I called it anyway, to becoming a seemingly endless source of problems and controversy in Kyrgyzstan? Bruce, that is, um, yeah, that is that is a good question. I think very slowly, very slowly and insidiously. Um, for, first of all, um, yeah, I think the institutional environment context within which Kumtor um, unfolded contributed immensely to what has become of Kumtor. Um, that was, um, you know, Kyrgyzstan opened its uh, doors to the rest of the world, so to say, um, at a time when uh, the global economy has become increasingly neoliberal, but at the same time resource intensive. So in that case, what we have uh, been observing in Kyrgyzstan unfolding is not unique to Kyrgyzstan, but Kyrgyzstan you know, became part of the global resource intensive and neoliberal economy. And by neoliberal, meaning that not only, you know, what we think uh, deregulated markets, um, no, but deregulating uh, and re-regulating uh, different, different rules of the game that, that govern, um, in this particular case, gold uh, mining in Kyrgyzstan. And um, licensing of, 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 of deposits, you know, Kumtor is just one example that we see. There's so much more that we, we don't see. But licensing and and uh, agreements and re-agreeing and changing hands, all of that has become a playground for all the governments, basically, that Kyrgyzstan had since the independence. And uh, it has become a matter of uh, legitimacy, state legitimacy, but at the same time, also a medium through which state has been perpetuating uh, violence, first of all, against the nature, but also very slowly against um, the society. I will leave it at that, and then I think I can dwell uh, later on uh, the details. Yeah, great, because I do want to get into this a lot more. I mean, there's a lot of politics that are surrounding uh, the Kumtor, and I always have surrounded Kumtor Goldmine, and certainly we've seen a lot of bending of legislation over the years to, to accommodate the, the project up in the mountains. Um, but Asil, if I could go to you, you're there in Kyrgyzstan right now, uh, and you've been there. What Can you give us a sense of, of, of what uh, how people see this project? Uh, you know, I mean, a little bit about the history, but but more importantly, right now, uh, when it's when it's back at the forefront in the news once again, uh, opposition groups are calling for a total accounting of the money and everything like that. But how, how do people in Kyrgyzstan when they when they hear the words Kumtor Goldmine, what do they think of? Thanks, Bruce. That's an excellent question. The picture is uh, complicated because, of course, society is not homogeneous and uh, is quite polarized on this issue. I think the historicity of this conflict around Kumtor, the succession of various corrupt elites over its governance and the succession of different legislative framework all make up basically it's very for ordinary people. It's very difficult to follow what has happened in Kumtor. If you ask ordinary people, probably they would not even be able to tell you what's the current, what was the, the latest agreement between Sentera and the government. What's the share that Kyrgyzstan is having in this agreement? Because all this has been over the years actually uh, so much covered with um, corruption, with a uh, lack of transparency, with all the murky uh, deals behind the, the doors. So people, society in general, just lost track 
over what is actually the, the, the bone of contention. So people hear that there, are, there is, of course, the environmental uh, degradation violations happening, but uh, Sentara was able to uh, offset those uh, criticisms. There is, of course, then the, the case of the corruption of elites, because that delegitimizes any governmental claims over the Sentara's wrongdoings. So there is, there's been back and forth for decades, for several decades, and now the, uh, it's led to, on the one hand, confusion, who is guilty, and what are the main issues of contention. And I think that led to many people simply to develop really frustrations and that to, frustrations about that the biggest gold mine is not really leading to the development of Kyrgyzstan as society would wish it. And that's why I think uh, when uh, Japarov uh, came on the wave of uh, last revolution in 2020, a lot of people simply supported his uh, very simplistic idea to nationalize it as a one simple way to put an end to this ongoing, never finishing issues around Kumtor. But now we see that this secession, concession, I'm sorry, concession case um, is actually far from being that uh, clear and transparent. The society still doesn't know what were the exact conditions under which Kumtor passed to the Kyrgyz hands. And uh, the part of the society which is unhappy about this, because we really don't know, actually, under which conditions we now own uh, Kumtor. And um, I think that frustrates them, uh, the other part of the society who uh, do not agree with uh, Japarov. Thank you very much. And, that, uh, you know, Amanda, I want, if I can get back to you for just a second here and, and ask you, how, when Kumtor, you know, you mentioned that it started production in 1997. You know, at the time, this was, um, it, it looked like this was a real benefit for Kyrgyzstan, right? There were, all Central Asian countries were trying to get deals with foreign companies to show that they were, they were a good place to invest uh, foreign money into. Kumtor was actually the first major investment by a foreign company that started turning a profit, that started, started production, right? You know, I mean, you had uh, Chevron and, and uh, the Tengiz field in Kazakhstan, and it's roaming all around Central Asia, but, but Kumtor started production, and it was seen, you know, at least in the, in the very early days, in the, in the mid-1990s, and, and at the time of production, as a real benefit for the country. Um, where did it start to go wrong? On, you know, where, where, what happened that, that people started to ask a lot of questions about what was up with this gold mine and, and, and was it really a benefit for the Kyrgyz people or not? Right. Great question. Right. It, the, the contract was signed in 1992. So really thinking about that, that the mine had already been the, the site, the ore field had been identified in the 1980s by Soviet geologists and, you know, mapped out. So it was kind of a ready site for development. And so thinking about that, how long it takes to develop a mine site to begin production and, and milling at the site up at 4,000 meters. So, you know, it was it was that first part of the neoliberal uh, shift, as Earl mentioned. But, you know, there were a number of smaller accidents that happened at the at the site, most of which are not discussed but the one that made the most, you know, ripple was the 1998 spill of sodium cyanide from a truck driving up to the mine, filling into the Borskon River just upstream from Isakul. And it dumped 1.7 tons of sodium, of, of that sodium cyanide. And then the lack of transparency that Estelle had mentioned, you know, started then. I mean, the lack of transparency began earlier, right? Like what 
what were what was the agreement between the government and 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 Santera? Some of those early documents are very difficult to come by, right? To obtain and certainly are not made readily available publicly. And at each stage, those agreements have not been made readily uh, available publicly, or they're written in English or in Russian, and not in Kyrgyz, and not you know uh, in different in different versions often. But the cyanide spill in 1998 was and the lack of transparency about it, it took hours before the company informed uh, local residents about the spill. And so water was used to irrigate fields. People became ill. And then the government responded by removing people, uh, evacuating people. Um, There are all sorts of controversies about what happened. And after that, because of the lack of responsiveness and concern about what the health impacts were, uh, people in the area started mobilizing and organizing. There's an organization eventually established called Karek in in Barcelona and Tamga that worked to uh, fight for compensation for local residents and eventually filed a lawsuit that that lasted you know a decade and a half before culmination a few years ago and a very minimal set- settlement for those who still survived. Uh, were surviving or still living after who had uh, you know been injured by the accident. So I think the transparency problems began there, the distrust, and then the worry about what impacts there were. Certainly local residents have been concerned all along about the truck traffic that's constant. The, you know, trucks bringing flammable uh, materials up and down the the road into up to the mine. You know, there are concerns that are constant and daily, the noise, the visible dust, all of that is a daily reminder so that was really, I think, the starting point that then really continued activism about Contour, whether to shut the mine down or shut the open pit or increase the number of people working there or increase the percentage that the Kyrgyz government attained and money that would go to the local population. That's where it all began. And then the compensation that Contour agreed to provide for the accident, which also was, it was injuries, it was also the shutdown of tourism and agricultural season, some real economic impacts for local residents, that money disappeared. So where that money went, the the uh, operating company said, well, we, we gave it to the Kyrgyz governments. And so it was never really distributed in the years immediately following, during the Akayev uh, regime, really following the accident. That's where it all began. Okay, thank you for doing that. And, and Asil, I'm going to come back to you first um, with this. I want to talk a bit about the contract. The contract to, to, to mine Kumtor was renegotiated like several times. Uh, and and at least before um, they imposed external management over the mine in 2021, I think the Kyrgyzstan state's share was 26%. I mean, how did how did they go? How did the gold mine ended up end up being only 26% belonging to Kyrgyzstan? Well, uh, Bruce, I'm not the the best person to ask this question. Uh, first of all, I'm lacking this um, fin- kind of uh, public finance and, I don't know, a law background to really uh, make a judgment. What I know is that this issue of reduction of the shares that Kyrgyzstan 
hold held in 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 the agreement uh, was of course the biggest issue and was uh, always at the 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 center of uh, contention uh, for example in the parliament uh, so there was constantly commissions that would be opened and created to discuss this the the deputies would uh, dispute over this there would be of course a lot of protests uh, by uh, local residents but also in Bishkek so these agreements were always fought back and forth and and uh, unfortunately, un- unfortunately, uh, the succeeding uh, governments uh, would never really release all the um, kind of the full data on this, how the agreements were achieved. Uh, for example, this last uh, agreement when uh, the, the share were reduced, I think, to 27%. I think that was achieved under that Ambayev's uh, government. And all we received uh, um, pu- publicly is that uh, uh, basically that uh, the, this is the best what uh, Kyrgyz can, can hope and we should simply agree for this. Um, so the, the lack of transparency from the Kyrgyz government was uh, one of the major issues why basically Kuntor case came to this state of affairs. Uh, but may- maybe Beryl can tell more about this. That's good. Thank you, because this is an important point. And I'll go to Beryl right now. Can you can you speak a little bit about how, you know, I mean, it, the gold is in Kyrgyzstan. It's their mine. Uh, how did they end up getting, you know, barely 25 percent of the project? This is this it sounds like a very simple question, Bruce, but it's really complicated. And before before I answer, I just want to say the one thing that Asel was mentioning earlier that it is really complicated for um um or opaque for ordinary people to understand what's going on. Uh, I have to say also I think for all of us, or I will speak for myself, it is extremely challenging. And this is the one job I have you know, to understand what's going on around resource politics and extractive politics. And um, and there's, there's a reason for that because it is, you know, done very, very smartly um, and, and very strategically. I'm not saying that this is all set out. You know, there's a, there's a script about this, but it is, it, there is, yeah, it is becoming a source of disinformation, so to say. So, you know, this is, it's, it's all very complex for, for all of us and very difficult to understand. And I think this is not just it is not a coincidence. But about the other question, I think there have been 13 agreements around Kumtor and um, plus one. Now, the last one we could say that finalized the divorce between Santera and and the Kyrgyz government, 14 years since um, 92. And each negotiation, one could say more or less coalesced around uh, regime change or push for regime change and Environmental violations. Um, these are not surprise. These are these are not um, coincidental issues, really. And after the toxic spill of '98, it led to an, um, yeah, it, it raised a lot of questions about the environmental um, management, safety regulations around the mine, uh, but also questions about. Uh, right. So this is, you know, this is the, 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 the one mind that we have. This is this is one thing that we have going on in the independence uh, history, so does the economic history. What are we getting out of it? Who else is getting out of this? And um, of course, it led to then 2010, you know, the, the really um, surge in, 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 in activism around ousting the second president, Bakiev and stuff like that. But um, it started, I think the first uh, renegotiated agreement was around 2003. And um, it was uh, thanks to Akayev that I think the, the lowest share I remember was 16%, 16.6% or something like that. And over the years, it has been negotiated to 33% and then 26%. And uh, share is one thing, the changing share. And But there have been also a lot of 
um, additional agreements, one of payments that have been um, demanded from Santerra later on. And um, some of the, and then we also don't know for which purposes they were used. You know, um, eventually there were two funds set up, the development fund, regional development fund and environmental. Um, uh, fund around these issues where, where the where the funds would be, where the, the finances would be flowed into and used. But we also don't know about what happened to all those things. No, also the, the one of the moments was 2017 under Isakov and uh, Atambayev. There was yet another agreement, and um, they uh, blamed Center for dumping uh, waste rock on glaciers, which actually, of course, was uh, legally allowed to do in one of those agreements. I think it was a 2009 agreement, and uh, Kyrgyz government was supposed to receive um, millions um, of US dollars. And also there, we don't know what happened. We, we know what happened to Isako, but there are so many questions about all the monies and agreements and changing and share. It is really difficult to have an understanding of what is happening around nation's resources. Okay, great. Thank you. Because we are going to get into get into the new ownership in the second part of this. Um, and and that, that is my cue to mark the halfway point in this conversation. And so this is the Medjolis podcast, and we are discussing the situation around Kyrgyzstan's Kumtor gold mine. I am joined by Dr. Varil Ojakli, a development practitioner turned academic, currently principal investigator at the Center for East European and International Studies in Berlin, Germany. Uh, she's a critical geographer and institutional economist and studies extractive infrastructures and authoritarian governance in Central Asia and the South Caucasus, including the role that China plays in the region. Uh, in her PhD, Beryl investigated the making and unmaking of Kyrgyzstan's gold rush. Uh, Dr. Asel Dualat Keldieva, uh, she is an independent scholar and she has great background knowledge in resource extraction and nationalism in Kyrgyzstan. And Dr. Amanda Wooden, an associate professor of environmental studies and sciences at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. Her research explores environmental and water politics, extractive industries, hydroenergy, climate change, glaciers, and nationalism in Central Asia and the United States. Her work has been published in journals including Post-Soviet Affairs, Political Geography, and Central Asian Survey in various edited volumes. She is currently working on a book about the Kumtor mine. I am Bruce Benier, host of the Medjolis podcast. All right, so let's get down to it now. Now, now we got new ownership, right? We know that Sadr Japarov. I mean, he he was he's been against this project. He's from the Issaquah region. He led protests ten years ago. He wanted uh, Kyrgyzstan to take ownership of this this mine. He became president. Now they own the mine, and yet we still have all these problems uh, going on around the the mining project, and and in fact, Kyrgyz ownership. Uh, Baril, could you tell me what you know? You've you've hinted that this is this has become such a political issue for for Kyrgyzstan and over the years for for really any of the governments. There was there was this sense of like trying to grab hold of this project somehow or another, use the project for their own political designs. Can you speak a little bit about Japarov's government and and what he thinks he's he's able to get out of Kyrgyz ownership of the Kumtor gold mine? Yeah, Japarov, we could say, has made himself a career around uh, around Kumtor, around discourses of justice around Kumtor, returning to resources to nation. He's actually very consequent in that, and you have to give that to him. He started his uh, little project of nationalizing Kumtor mine um, uh, ten years ago, we could say, and and 2012-13, where he proposed actually uh, to the parliament to go through with nationalization. 
uh, it wouldn't work out then and it would you know take some years until he came uh, to power as president 2020 uh, 2021 that he would go through with that but w- before um, I, I answer uh, directly to your question there's just one thing I want to say that you you, you mentioned Kumtor be, becoming political the, the thing about political is that uh, the ruling elite have politicized increasingly people's, ordinary people's genuine grievances that have started with 98. But they have also seen what they can get away with. I mean, what happened around 98 was was horrible really but it did not cause a rethinking of the governance it didn't change and it was unfortunately also not the last uh, uh, hazardous accident that happened so what happened was that people started and with people I mean ruling elites co-opting people's grievances and um, uh, their their grievances for more justice and people like Japarov in a very uh, adept way started embracing these words this discourse and uh, politically politicizing issues, but not politicizing the solutions. The solutions and responsibility have been over the years depoliticized and externalized and dumped onto companies like Santera, for example. And um, going back to Japarov, uh, yeah, so he, he, we have uh, seen external management introduced May 2021. We expected when he came to power that, you know, it would be a matter of time. He laid low and uh, he had Tengiz Bolturuk um, work uh, behind the scenes until um, Bolturuk really became the exter- external manager officially. And and then since then, I think this is really a huge milestone because the things we, we haven't known a lot about Kumtor, but since then we have really no idea how much has been produced or how much of it has been sold to where. And now uh, external management has been seized. Tengiz Bolturuk is not anymore the manager, but at the same time, Kumtor mine has been managed by this as such a name, I mean, glorious national holding that is called Heritage of Great Nomads. And this exemplifies what I'm trying to tell you, that the play of words and appealing uh, emotions and, you know, nomadic tradition, playing on actually people's values. And um, so, but Tengels, Volteruk uh, uh, is, is, is the management, managing director of this national holding that is responsible for Kumtor, but Volteruk is not the, the head of Kumtor and leading Kumtor anymore, uh, based on financial violations. It is yet another play that is going on, uh, as if, you know, uh, Japarov saying, I promised you justice already 10 years ago. Now I'm delivering it. And now I have a critical eye also on my people. Um, but we cannot trust any of this information. And and, and, and this is this is what we see. You know, Kumtor is beyond Kumtor. It is we what we are observing is really perpetuated extractive state that is not responsible that cannot be trusted and negotiates uh, what is not up for negotiation for uh, many people. Well, this is great. Uh, thank you for for bringing up that point. And that that will bring me to you, Amanda, since you've you've been watching this for years and years. What do you see any difference in the way that the mine is run now as opposed to what it, how it was run when the Canadian companies were involved? You know, I think. The question of transparency surrounds also operations currently at the mine, right? I think that, you know, how most people think of how the mine was run was that it was safe. Uh, This was a narrative that Sentara often used. When I visited the mine in 2013, this is a key focus of theirs, but there were many accidents. There were workers who died. There was instability in the mine pits. And there are all sorts of issues that are, you know, inherent to this kind of operation. I mean, mining is a violent process. 
And so, uh, especially on this scale and in this kind of location. So, I, I mean, I think that we will see problems. We are seeing problems happening. Um, in terms of how much, you know, are corners being cut? Is money being siphoned off? I don't know. You know, that's really hard, hard to identify. But it was one of the criticisms of Santerra in recent years that that they were cutting corners. Um, was that something that became public because it was used as a cudgel to justify nationalization is also hard to identify. So I think that maybe SL has more to say here about just even the last few days about information regarding the sale of gold, where it's gone. I, I think that's an interesting part of the story. And I think to so what Burrell was saying is the Jabari is just saying, just trust me, right? Like we're not selling any gold. We're not doing anything wrong. It's all working. We're working for the people. But it is this the the problems of operations at this site have always existed. And really public pressure has made whoever was running the mine have to reveal information about what's going on. If we think about the dumping on the glaciers, first of all, the extraction of of glacial ice, which has to continue, is continuing. And then dumping of that glacier ice on the Davidov and Lisi and now the Seritor glaciers, uh, that uh, the dumping on the Davidov was something that became public because in part workers on the site started sharing photos of it, right? So leaked information put a lot of pressure for temporarily to pressure Santerra to stop dumping on the glaciers. And the dumping of rock waste on the glaciers was to melt them faster so that it would save money because you wouldn't have to dig out as much ice, uh, much glacial ice to remove it and get it out of the way. So I think that same process is happening now with this outrage about what is happening. There's no transparency. Where's the where is this money and where is the gold going is putting more pressure. I think we'll see more information coming out soon. Maybe others have some more to say on this point. Thank you very much. Uh, so this is to follow up on what Amanda was just saying, too. I mean, if you listen to the Kyrgyz government talk about what the gold production now, you know, strangely, just a couple of months ago, they said that, that the production was down because of the situation last year and then the change of ownership. And and then all of a sudden they turned around and just, you know, last week and said, no, actually, we produced a, a huge amount of gold. It's, it's hard to figure out, you know, you can one can understand how people are confused about what What's really going on? There's a total lack of transparency going on out there. But but how are people reacting in Kyrgyzstan to the information that they got? I mean, do they? Uh, I know there's some nationalists that certainly follow Japara, but the government's explanation of what's happening with this gold mine, you know, that it didn't make as much money as it did last year. No, wait a minute, it did. Uh, you know, and, and where did the gold go to? Of course, this is one of the latest scandals. What happened to 19... 19- tons of, of gold uh, that went to an, an unspecified country. How is that? How are people reacting to the government's di- different explanations of what exactly is going on since they've taken ownership of this? Okay, Bruce, um, I'll try to uh, put um, several elements of the puzzle because I've been uh, working on this, trying to understand this puzzle for now since two years. There's several things that remain really um, secretive. So it's kind of what we see is just really the top of the iceberg, right? And uh, I think the story is much larger. So let's start from, first of all, like Japarov, since he came to power, he imitated 
dynamism and activism. He increased salaries for some vulnerable groups by 100%. Like teachers became, the profession of teachers became an, suddenly an attractive career path in rural areas. So salaries for medics and many other uh, civil servants in rural areas. Uh, but besides that, also the uh, construction of large infrastructure of the railroad connecting Balakchi and Narin, of other um, smaller hydro power stations and so on and so forth and we always i mean i always wondered where the money is coming to fund all these big projects since two years and nobody could answer this because we the economy uh, recovered very slowly from the pandemic Actually, uh, Kyrgyzstan in 21 w uh, saw its reduction of its export by more than 40%. And that includes basically the export of gold. So in 2021, Kyrgyzstan did not export gold to the level of the previous years. So where could, where Kyrgyzstan, where the government could generate so much money to fund suddenly all these big reforms, all this big infrastructure, the increase of salaries and so on and so forth. Now, with the disappearance of at least 19 tons of gold, that thing, that question might be answered. Maybe that is what has funded actually all these reforms. Right. Otherwise, where this the where this huge uh, amount of money would be coming from. So that's one element of the puzzle. The second thing is what uh, Beryl alluded to is uh, this big new state enterprise called the Nomad thing, whatever, uh, led by uh, Bolturuk. I have conducted um, interviews with people um, in the in the industry in this uh, mining sector who've been laid off. Uh, because this new state enterprise was created. What is really very confusing is that why to create a new state enterprise which actually has an ambition to not only cover mining industry but many other sectors like such as industry, such as tourism, if already such institutions existed in its place. For example, the first thing uh, that Bolteruk informally did is that he wanted to become a father, a new author of a new mining code. Why to have a new mining code if you already have actually a working, well, not superb, but still a working, very recent mining legislation? Uh, this law on subsoil, which was uh, created only in uh, 2012. So basically, the hypothesis, the suspicion is that, again, as Biril just said, is actually to create new institutions, which would be then owned by different networks around the president, Japarov, which would take over all these different mines, all these different projects, all, all these industrial projects and, as a rent, as another source of rent. And this is how the previous people who've been employed in this industry see this new initiative by Bolteruk. So this is the second element of this uh, of the puzzle, right? And the third one is that I have conducted um, focus groups um, in uh, in spring of this year. We wanted to uh, ask people, ordinary citizens, what they think of the populist uh, promises of Japarov. And unfortunately, this uh, uh, nationalization of Kumtor really is kind of really is high 
high on the agenda. A lot of people support this because I think they are so fed up that in these three decades, they haven't seen real impact from Kumtor on their uh, daily lives. Um, and you cannot blame them for that, uh, but you can blame the populist policies of the current government, basically of uh, galvanizing these grievances and doing right now things that uh, are lacking transparency. So we don't know where the gold is. We don't know whether the money has contributed to the budget. And I don't know whether uh, the pressure, the public pressure is enough for this government to release this information because current government is working on the on the populist premises. Simply as the president is saying that we should trust him. We should trust his words and just hope for, for the for the uh, for the best. That's all we for for the moment we hear from him. Yeah, I think he did mention that too in his speech, uh, his interview last week uh, on Saturday when he said that you know where how the gold gets moved and where it goes to are confidential matters. Uh, it's a state secret, uh, and, and I'm not trying to trying to trick the people of Kyrgyzstan. You know, we are getting close to the end of the show. There's no possibility of anyone getting three better experts than than you three right here now. So I'm actually going to open the floor and give everyone a last comment. You guys are obviously following the reports about what's what's happening with Kumtor. Uh, you're in touch with the situation out there. What is what is being reported that's not correct uh, is one possibility. Or, or what do people need to know that they're not seeing, that they don't understand about the situation at Kumtor right now? What are the important points that haven't been mentioned or haven't been adequately dealt with uh, so far? And Amanda, I'll start with you. Right. Thank you so much. You know, I, in addition to all the questions that, that we've been raising, I just wanted to highlight one of the major consequences of nationalization that, that needs to be considered and isn't, I think, being talked about very much. Occasionally, you'll see reference to reclamation fund. And there was a, a reclamation fund that, that was established out of the, the last agreements to the tune of 53 million. It's a reclamation trust fund. So that was in the, the last round of contract negotiations prior to nationalization. And the center had then committed to, was required to make annual contributions to this fund. But in the, the plan of arrangements that the Centera shareholders uh, approved this summer, uh, terminating all rights and obligations of Centera, all of those rights and obligations transferred to the government, including all of the reclamation trust funds that have been held by Centera are now with, with the government and the responsibility to develop a technical reclamation project, uh, which will have to begin uh, around the time of the life, the end of the life of the mine, which is predicted to be 2031. So the question I have is, first of all, 53 million is not very much for a site of this sort that will require millions of dollars annually to maintain after the closure of the mine whatever the cost is to simply do reclamation of the pit. We have active glaciers that are moving into the pit. We have a massive tailings lake that is unlined sitting on permafrost um, that we don't have full uh, information about the, the science regarding what's happening with the permafrost there. So we have the great possibility of leaking tailings pond, of a moving of glaciers moving into the pit and potentially impacting the tailings pond. We have a glacial lake outburst flood potential, a Lake Petrov just upstream from uh, the tailings pond. 
And all of this will require a significant outlay of annual uh, money that is nowhere near covered by this by this reclamation fund if it remains intact. And I think those are really, really big concerns for the people in Narin are talking about this that are downstream from uh, the Control River that runs into meets the Narin River. So that's what I'm, I worry about, finding transparency about that as well. Okay, thank you for saying that. Um, Baril, uh, what should people know that they, they aren't hearing about the Kumtor gold mine? Bruce, your, your last question is quite brutal. I have to, have to sum this all up, but I will try to do that in three steps. First of all, I want to add a little bit more to the confusion because there are some aspects of this story that we didn't uh, address yet. Then I would like to point out to some of the things that we have to watch uh, critically. And finally, uh, I, I want to I wanna end my contribution with an appeal. First of all, the confusion. Because, we, we, because I mean, that's the, the, the question of the, of the week, right? Uh, where is the gold? But actually, it is the question since uh, since May 2021 that we have. And one thing that we didn't mention was that Kyrgyzstan was barred from London bullion uh, market. So it was not able to, it was not classified as a trusted uh, trusted uh, exporter, so to say. And already last year, around September, the questions came, uh, arose, what happened to four tons of gold? And then four tons of gold became this year 19 uh, tons of gold. And according to the final uh, information that I had was um, from yesterday and a little bit more from Vecherny Bishkek uh, for a couple of hours ago, is that now we have a list of countries where the gold was exported, including Russia, Turkey, UK and Switzerland, and then an unspecified country. And I have some so alternative sources that this unspecified country was also Switzerland. And all of this under the banner of safe operations uh, uh, and uh, security reasons, right? Why do we have to care? Why, why are we caring about security questions right now? Why is it a security issue while Kyrgyzstan has been producing gold in a large scale, uh, scale, uh, large scale since a, a couple of decades? And uh, so, yeah, that's one thing. And another thing I have, I have noticed is that uh, from 19 tons, um, I saw at the Vecherny-Bishkek report that only four was produced, whereas 15 tons were uh, exported from the existing reserves. Again, wh- why don't we know? There are so many questions and uh, state is not responding to uh, journalist uh, questions and queries. And this is really alarming. Another thing is that the great nomads, uh, heritage of great nomads. So uh, recently, I think in this, at the same, at this, at this, with the same uh, breath as Boltrup was relieved as an external manager from Kumtor, um, this holding signed uh, an MOU with uh, China Heavy Machinery Corporation. Um, uh, fields of cooperation are surprise, surprise, mining, logistics, and hydropower. And we again don't know the, the details of, of uh, all of this, basically. So um, uh, with that, the second point, what to watch is that Bolturuk. He has been around actually since 90s. I think he was back then, he went by the name Bolturukov. And I don't have a good feeling about this guy, to put it <laughs> to put it colloquially. And um, he, we have to watch what he's doing, which positions he's moving to. He, he's, he has double citizenship, you know, and before he even was appointed as an external manager um, or even uh, Japarov got out of the prison, he was, he had uh, a diplomatic pass from Kyrgyzstan. Again, um, in, in 
interesting uh, developments. And one more thing to watch is we have been talking about the uh, operating on glaciers. So now, while the nationalization has been pushed uh, forward based on environmental violations and the need, urgent need to save the Kyrgyz glaciers, what's happening is that actually the operations are planned to be expanded to new sites um, on uh, Koendu and Bordeaux, which are protected zones, actually. And we don't have any information about what the plans are. Also, we don't know if the operations will go beyond 2026, which was more or less uh, a, a you know, point in timeline. Uh, recently, there have been also rumors that there are now more reserves. So we don't have any information about the scale of operations, the future of operations, and of course, you know, the, the general governance of it. And the final point, point my, my, my appeal is that we really need to go beyond Kumtor in all of these things. We are, while we are fixated and trying to understand, uh, as an Indiana Jones, where the you know a couple of uh, tons of gold are. What's happening is that we don't know what else is happening in other deposits, right? What is happening in in uh, Shambesa, in Maidan, Batken? What is happening in Arlovka, Taldebulakleva uh, Berezhny, or what is happening with Jetim Tow? These are all the questions that concern countries' resources. Um, and at the same time, uh, through this, uh, we see this, the, the state that is pushing, uh, the perpetrating violence against, against people through dispossession, through denial, and through discourse. And uh, so we have to see all this, all these developments within the rising authoritarianism uh, and how, how it finds a new medium through resources. And, um, and final words, I'm sorry for taking up too much time, is that, you know, um, Kyrgyzstan has experienced uh, three decades of international development cooperation that has been focusing on human rights, development and democracy. Um, this is about human rights, what's happening in Kumtor and what's happening in other uh, deposits. We have to uh, go beyond programming and thinking and see also, you know, the insidious, the invisible um, uh, ways of how violence is uh, spreading in this country. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And, and thank you also for, for reminding us that, you know, we're talking about Kumtor because it's the biggest set, but there are dozens of other sites around the country where the same problems are happening. Um, so I'm going to, I guess it's it's my turn to ask you the, my brutal question, uh, as Varil put it. <laughs> You know, you're out there. There must be things that more information that you want that you're not getting about what's happening with with Kumtor under the new ownership. Can you share with us some of the some of the things the government was a little bit clearer about or, or the authorities at the line were a little more clear about? Sure. I, I just uh, agree with what uh, Amanda and Beryl um, um, told before. And to add to their points of concerns, probably two things. First of all, within this Kumtor scandal, the scum of the century, so to speak, one thing that remained really for the moment um, unaddressed is the impunity of elites. We know that any foreign investor that did wrongdoings in the mining sector could not do it without their the corrupt, incompetent and irresponsible elites. And Japarov, when he opened uh, this case uh, of nationalization, one strong promise that he made was that all the elites, elites from the archives era until now would be punished if proven guilty. Well, for the moment, we haven't seen anyone brought to 
to justice within this Kumtor case. Akaif was received here on the Kyrgyz soil several times as a, um, as a participant of this case, but uh, he never himself faced any charges, uh, neither the subsequent uh, government members. So uh, there, this leaves really um, a huge blow because it basically means that you can plunder state resources, you can plunder state funds and still go away from justice. And this is, I think, a very big blow to uh, Japarov's uh, government in the future, unless um, it will be addressed soon. The second thing is that, of course, Kumtor remains still, well, uh, until the nationalization, it was the... Uh, the biggest mine in the country and therefore um, a kind of um, an example for other mines, for smaller mines. So um, this case was followed very closely by other investors, both uh, domestic and foreign. Justifiably so, they were concerned whether uh, their mines, their deposits uh, would be also taken over uh, one way or another. And in um, the last revolution of 2020, we've seen that actually um, such uh, politicization of uh, mines happened in many other localities. We simply, simply the mass media didn't report it well as it as it does with Kumtor. So um, other mines are also subject of such uh, regime changes, and the, the the instability of the mining sector is of course uh, one concern within the, the the larger picture of Kumtor, right? And the last thing that uh, my concern is um, are the the state of civil activism and opposition. Kyrgyzstan presents a quite a paradoxical case in which we see the sudden eruptions of civic activism. But then on the other side, there is no to date um, and a sustainable environmental movement which would unite all the regions of the country, uh, which would not only sporadically uh, react to development, but also have an agenda of environmental justice, right? And this is well, my primary concern and uh, it would be good um, that if um, civil society in opposition would actually not only politicize the grievances but as uh, mentioned by Beril but also actually work on solutions. Um, so these are the three concerns that I'm sharing for today. Excellent, excellent. Thank you. Um, you know, as much as I'd like to sit here and talk for another hour about this, uh, I know it's late in Bishkek and I know people have other other things that they need to tend to for the day. So um, I want to thank you very much. A huge thank you to doctors Amanda Wooden, Baril Ojkali, and Asel Dolat Kildiaba. And, uh, of course, a big thank you, as always, to my producer in Washington, D.C., Nathan Shoemaker. Um, appreciate it. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjulis podcast or the Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thanks, and we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>